Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The great questions of the day will not be settled by means of speeches and majority decisions, but by iron and blood. These words were immortalised by Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor, who created the state of Germany as we know it today. Iron and Blood is also the title of a book by this week's guest, the German historian Katia Hoyer, who joins me to discuss Germany's past present and future. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, it's good to be here. Who is Olaf Scholz and what can we expect from him? Uh, So Olaf Scholz is obviously just been uh, sworn in as the new German chancellor. He is a social democrat, so uh, left of centre in his political uh, orientation. Originally from the north, from Hamburg, as are most of his new cabinet, which is quite an interesting development. <laughs> There's only one minister, I think, from the south, so maybe that's that's saying something about where the power has shifted within Germany as well. Uh, and yes, he's he's basically sold himself as a little bit of a Merkel 2.0 during the election, um, which is pretty much the ticket that he got elected on including actually, you know, using some of her stock phrases in, in interviews and so on, um, using the, the fam- famous um, Merkel diamond, which she sort of forms with her hands in front of her body, and then all of these kinds of things, and, and got elected on that ticket. And actually, as it turned out now, um, he has very much pulled the coalition that is, that has formed under his leadership further left than he'd originally portrayed himself as. Um, so we'll see where that, where that goes. You mentioned Angela Merkel there. Now she's dominated German politics for well over a decade. Future historians, how will they view the era of Angela Merkel? I think as one of relative stability in the sense that, you know, when you look at the long uh, and tumultuous history of, of Germany over the recent sort of, you know, decades and, and even in the in the whole 150 years of its existence, the last 16 years have seemed relatively calm and stable. But I think it's also a period of stagnation to some extent. So nothing major sort of happened. There didn't seem to be a particular uh, direction in which she wanted to take the country. I think it's a bit of both. If you want to see it in a positive light, it's stability. If you want to see it in a negative light, you end up with stagnation, I think. And that, that seems to be the big sort of theme, I think, around her tenure. 
Her reputation seems to be very positive worldwide. There are these glowing reviews of her chancellorship. She seems pretty popular compared to most world leaders. And, you know, most world leaders, prime ministers, presidents, their careers end in failure. It seems that her reputation has remained solid, despite there have been some obvious criticisms of her of her reign. Look at the migrant crisis, look at Nord Stream 2, look at the Eurozone crisis, how she handled that. Why has she remained such a popular politician globally? Why has her reputation been so solid? I think many people, particularly on the on the sort of centre left, have seen in her a sort of counter figure to uh, some of the political figures that have emerged elsewhere in the West. So when you compare her style to, say, Donald Trump um, or Boris Johnson or other sort of fairly distinct and, and sort of flamboyant figures, I think it's her calm and the sensibleness she exudes, if you will, um, that have made her popular, particularly with the centre-left as a politician that, that they would have wanted to see in, in their own um, country. And as such, I think she's always been held up as somebody who's sort of holding the fort, really, of, of sort of centre-left politics, as seemingly so. I mean, what people tend to forget is that she also got some of the worst election results for her party since since its existence. Particularly the last election in 2017 was pretty disastrous for her party and took it took months to form a coalition afterwards, the longest period it's ever taken to form a government afterwards. So within Germany, I think, yes, she herself held her reputation reasonably stable, but it's among the same sort of groups that, you know, sort of agree with her brand of politics rather than um, the population as a as a whole, which had sort of slowly begun to turn away from her political party. Some of her critics, including Donald Trump, but other American politicians as well, would argue that Germany under her reign was a sort of weak link in the West against China, against Russia. If you look at Nord Stream 2, if you look at the fact that Germany hasn't been paying huge amounts of money into NATO or its own defence, do you think Germany is the weak link in the West? Uh, I've myself been hugely critical of that. I do think that a country that is the fourth largest economy in the world needs to pull its weight in terms of its defence and also fitting in with NATO and, and other um, alliance systems in terms of security, both in Europe and in the in the world. So in that respect, you know, particularly with NATO, as you say, they've, they've now agreed under the pressure that Donald Trump put on Germany during various meetings to slowly try and get to the 2% that they're obliged to, to pay into their own defence uh, of GDP. Um, they're on 1.4, I think, at the moment. So it's, it's kind of slowly being increased because I think even within Germany, there's a recognition that they can't sit on the fence. I think the problem for Germany, as always, um, is that its location in the sort of centre of Europe means that it's looking both east and west and hasn't as firmly aligned itself with the Western bloc as, say, Britain and France have because of the really, really strong kind of economic ties to Russia, as you've mentioned, Nord Stream 2 there is, is an example of that, but also to China. And because of that, you know, China is now Germany's largest trading partner. They're, they're always sat in between those two camps, basically trying to juggle both. And Merkel, in my opinion, has done that reasonably successfully, but not actually solved the problem. So sort of kind of just sat there and then let the problem continue. And her successors are now having to deal with increased pressure from America in particular, where, you know, decisions will have to be made, which, you know, camp you support as the two camps are drifting further and further apart. So I think we will see some uh, form of kind of stronger German foreign policy we will have to basically they'll make a have to make a decision which way they're going to go with that 
One of the issues that Olaf Scholz is going to face as Chancellor will be how to manage the European Union. Do you think the EU has now split into two sort of blocks? You've got the sort of central and eastern European countries, Hungary, Poland, who see the future of the EU as one of national sovereignty, nationalism, perhaps trading with each other, cooperating on certain things. But basically, you know, you, you have your own country and, and that's, uh, that's their view. And then on the other side, you've got the Western nations, Germany, France, other countries who believe in sort of this global idea of Europe, of supranationalism, of centralisation in Brussels. Is Europe now split in a similar way as in the Cold War? I think that is a huge problem, and I'm not even sure I agree with the fact that all of the Western states are going down the sort of supranational route. I mean, you see this in France, for example, there's huge support uh, among wide swathes of the population for, uh, you know, what's been dubbed Frexit, basically, and, and certainly Eurosceptical views. Even in Germany as well, the last uh, survey that I saw was just under 50% of Germans are also quite critical of the EU. So it's very much a political class that you described there in terms of their, their views. So that is a problem, I think, Europe-wide. How far can, can this sort of ideology that the EU has begun to develop be imposed onto individual uh, states and peoples. And the Eastern Europe problem, I think, links into that. But there's also another dimension to it in the sense that they always feel that Germany is talking to, say, Russia um, and China to some extent as well, but certainly Russia on the other side over the heads of the Eastern European nations. And the rhetoric that's coming from uh, the Baltic states and from Poland and from Hungary, you know, basically most of the Eastern European states is is becoming increasingly hostile towards Germany because this kind of sense that German arrogance basically means that, that they think they're just going to run the shop because they, they pay most of the contributions to the EU um, and therefore get to dictate to the smaller states how, how they run their own countries, basically. I think that's going to lead to more and more tension there, especially as obviously with, with the culture in those states, it, it doesn't lend itself naturally to a lot of the very liberal um, you know themes that we see in the West. And so from that angle... Take Hungary as a, as an extreme example, but you know when when you have laws introduced that go very much against what the EU would like to see in terms of its own ideology, and the EU basically telling Hungary you can't have those laws, you know eventually you end up with severe tensions that you know will lead to problems. I think for the integrity of the European Union as a bloc. Absolutely, and in Poland we're seeing that in an even more acute and direct way with this judicial case. I also wanted to mention Emmanuel Macron. You mentioned France there. Now, he is one of these presidents who he'll likely win his presidential election next year. And if he does, he's always wanted to try and be the sort of leader of the European Union to make France the more dominant power. And there's always this idea in France that Germany is the sort of, you know, the the dominating, the, the real power in Europe, and it's not France. So is there any chance that Emmanuel Macron could replace Germany, could replace Olaf Scholz as the leader of Europe? I think it's quite telling that the first foreign policy visit basically to another country is to Paris, um, the first official state visit, um, because they certainly all love Schultz and and also his new foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, who's who's from the Green Party. Uh, they're both extreme uh, Europhiles in the, and, and I think are, are going to try and work very closely together with the French to form some sort of dual sort of leadership block there, I think. Um, You're right in terms of Macron's ambitions there, I think. And in that respect, maybe it's a levelling out rather than a a sort of one has dominance over the other, um, because I think they're they're both kind of very much of the the same mould in terms of their their vision for for Europe going forward. 
I think the bigger problem is that if if that happens, the other states will feel even more alienated, as if, as if there was some sort of like German, French, you know, cabal running the block basically, and and telling the other states what they can and can't do, and that I think will lead to even more um, animosity. I want to talk a bit about Germany's history, linking in with sort of contemporary themes and contemporary ideas of Germany as a nation. So during the COVID crisis, every country was tested. People came together. There was lots of divisions. There still are, of course. And I think in England, in Britain, we could see many people railing, sort of uniting around a, an idea of what Britain is, the NHS. We had all these sort of, you know, lovely going out on the street and clapping for the NHS workers, things like that. You know, I just wondered, what do you think Germany's place is in the world today? Do you think Germany has found its purpose? No, I don't think it has yet. I think it's had too many upheavals in its in its sort of recent history to find that role and have that role. And it links into what we were saying earlier about NATO, um, as well in the sense that you know it's it's a huge global player economically uh, in terms of its population size. You know where it is strategically, basically within Europe, it it should play a dominating role, but it it doesn't quite know what that role is going to. To be, and I think you know the the federal structure of of the German state, in the sense that those sixteen individual states have retained very distinct identities, that doesn't help with that. But it's a necessary thing to to keep Germany together as one block. But you know, you mentioned COVID there earlier, for instance, when you know COVID policies get re- um, get rolled out in Germany, it's very much on a state by state basis. There are some federal rules that everyone has to stick to but on the whole basically lockdown for instance took very very different kind of forms in Germany because of those 16 states all doing their own uh, thing and that in itself was an interesting thing to see so for example when Markus Söder the Bavarian minister president put on a really really strong response to COVID and and kind of quite a harsh lockdown um, his rival candidate for the for the chancellorship um, was uh, Armin Laschet in North Rhine-Westphalia, who had a very soft lockdown, basically, and each of the populations there, you know, had their opinions on that. And that fractured, I think, or at least certainly showed the fractures within German um, national identity even further. So I don't think it has quite found its national identity and certainly not its, its role, I think, in the world yet either. Do you think, in a way, that fractured society and fractured country helps? In Britain, London is the dominating city it's the economic hub it's where most highly professional people go there's obviously a lot of resentment quite rightly i think in in other parts of the country because most of the investment happens in london most of the decisions happen in london most of the media is based in london and there's there's always been this tension between london westminster and the rest of the country and perhaps this led to brexit perhaps this led to other populist movements not just in britain but in other parts of the world, perhaps Germany in a way is united by its fractured society, perhaps by having strong localities, there isn't this similar kind of inequality and resentment. Yeah, to some extent, I agree with that. So there's certainly not a a hub or a centre in the way that London is to Britain or, you know, Paris is to France. And, you know, Berlin would be a very odd thing to have as a centre like that in any case, due to its very kind of distinct and, and almost un-German, I'd say, uh, culture and, and, and outlook. It's very, very, very left-leaning, for example, whilst the rest of Germany tends to be, you know, comparatively conservative on the whole. Um, so Berlin wouldn't even lend itself as a as a centre in the same way, I think, that, that London does. 
but it also divides quite a lot, particularly um, the traditional North-South divide, so between the originally sort of Protestant North and the Catholic South, that retains its, uh, I would say, further to some extent, so certainly, you know, very distinct identity to South Germany, and then the same goes for the North. Then, of course, you still have East and West, um, and you can see that on every political map that you look at, East Germany stands out like a like a sore thumb, whether you look at voting patterns or turnout to elections, um, kind of wider participation to society, unemployment figures, you know, whichever way you want to look at it, usually you've got this little sort of block of, of East Germany in a different colour on, on maps, um, you know, compared to West Germany. So that is still very much an issue as well in terms of getting the country together. And perhaps it is in some way comparable to, you know, to the North in, in England as well. Boris Johnson has recently made that comparison and said, in terms of the levelling up plans that the government have, uh, that, you know, Germany should be a role model for that because East and West have sort of managed, in his opinion, to level up more than, you know, in the last 30 years since unification, more so than North and, and South in this country have. I'm not sure I agree with that, but it is an interesting comparison there because the the resentment is there kind of East-West rather than South-North as well. Um, but I don't think it's any less severe. Before the pandemic, I think in Britain there's this view of Germany and Germans of being very resistant to, for example, CCTV cameras and other infringements on their liberty. Big support for Edward Snowden in Germany, of course, for his, for his whistleblowing activities. And yet, in the COVID pandemic, Germany has been one of those countries which has seen strict lockdowns, re- especially recently, and there hasn't been a huge amount of pushback. You know, this has been generally accepted within Germany. Obviously, there are people who, who don't like it. But was it a surprise that Germans were so, you know, swift to accept lockdowns? No, Germans do like their order and, and discipline. That's not cliche. I would say that, well, it is one, but it's based on a, on a grain of truth. And also like, security and safety, I think, is always something that people are very keen on in Germany. It's why you usually get huge support as well when, you know, laws get toughened up or longer prison sentences are announced for certain crimes and things like that. So there, there is support for those kinds of things. Uh, I would say the data and privacy thing is a very, very specific thing to Germany in, in that sense. Um, maybe to do with the past. I mean, I don't buy into this really simple narrative that people had, you know, the Gestapo under the Nazis and then the Stasi in the East in, in East Germany. And therefore, they're very critical of kind of state snooping on people's lives. I think that's a little bit too simplistic. I would say that that's a factor, certainly, but that wouldn't ex- that, that would mean that there would, have, there would have to be stronger differences between East and West, given that it would be kind of longer ago in the West. But there's certainly a scepticism towards specifically, you know, data protection and, and that kind of thing within Germany, rather than overall state interference. People are quite happy with fairly strong state interference, say in the economy, for example. That's always been the case in, in Germany. Um, there's huge state subsidies for certain economic sectors people get their houses subsidized when they put certain things in place that kind of stuff um so people are quite happy with that it's specific to data protection i would say what you um just described and also just to add to that as well in terms of lockdowns there's been pretty fervent resistance from yes a small part of society but it it does amount to about a third or so people who are very very skeptical of uh, not just the vaccines but lockdowns as well um, and have actually gone out on the streets in in much larger numbers than I would have expected previously and it's also got a lot of people who you wouldn't expect to see there out on the streets you know out there railing against the government and and suddenly being very sort of skeptical so you know ordinary 
kind of, you know, normal working people, middle class people, you see all sorts of people out there. It's not just kind of, you know, loner types, conspiracy theorists, but it's a huge range of people from what I like to call sort of neo-hippies, the people who are into their, you know, homeopathy and, and alternative ways of living and all of that sort of stuff, um, all the way to uh, kind of far-right activists who, who think that this is some sort of new, you know, state control mechanism um, to, to sort of control people's ways of thinking and all that. So it's a huge, broad spectrum of society that is also quite critical, specifically of these COVID measures rather than overall state interference. Obviously, as I mentioned, COVID is a huge test for any nation. You know, you're seeing hundreds of thousands of people die, potentially um, hospitals being overwhelmed, things like that. And people want to come together in the time of emergency. And in Britain, as I mentioned earlier, people were clapping for the NHS. And that was one, you know, this seems to be our new national religion. And, uh, you know, there's this whole thing about Captain Tom. I don't know if you followed uh, his fantastic work raising money for charity, which again was one of those figures who sort of united the nation during the lockdown period. What were the themes in Germany that united the country, if there were any? There certainly wasn't a figure like Captain Tom, um, you know, to again, maybe because of the fractured nature of German history and, and the health system in Germany is one of those things that is again divided into the 16 states as devolved and therefore, you know, yes. Healthcare is free at the point of use, and I would argue in, in terms of, you know, the quality and speed of it, decent. But there isn't this kind of, you know, as you say, kind of quasi-religious adulation of it in the sense that there is here. So the Germans would never, they, they think it totally weird to go out there and clap for health workers. But normal people would just kind of walk out and think, well, they've done their job, I've done mine. There isn't this um, kind of pedestal for, for the medical sector in the way that there is uh, here, I would say. It's hard to pin down, really. There was a sense of togetherness, I think, um, in local communities in the way that people began to appreciate, you know, those that were doing the, that were carrying on, basically, the key workers in this, what, what people call key workers in this country. So like your supermarket workers and, and, you know, delivery drivers and people like that. So I think that it was a more of a kind of less tangible, um, more universal kind of togetherness as a society rather than it being specific to a particular sector or a particular figure. And I don't think, yeah, it's sort of, you know, clapping from balconies and, and the things that you saw in Italy and elsewhere, I think that's just culturally not quite, you know, in line with what, what sort of Germans do. Everyone shuts their door behind themselves and, and is in their own house and, and doesn't really engage all that much with the people around them. So there was that there, but I, I think much less tangible and, and much less pinned to specific themes or people. So you said earlier, Germany is still struggling to find its place in the world. Huge economy, huge you know, influence in Europe, but it still doesn't really know how to, how to deal with that. The fact that Germany has such a negative view of much of its history, does that make it ultimately a failed or doomed civilizational force? I don't think so. I think we've recently seen a bit more confidence there from German politicians when you see them, you know, go out, be that within the EU or elsewhere. I think there's beginning to develop a certain sense of normality, I think, within Germany that will eventually, I think, give that another decade or two, lead to a normalisation, I think, of Germany's own history. There's already a lot of criticism now, particularly from the left, of the way that Germany puts the crimes under committed under the Nazi uh, regime on a pedestal and, and raises them sort of higher than, than other 
you know things that it's done in its history so particularly with the with the holocaust that's recently been challenged quite a lot from the left who obviously do that for political reasons as as mainly to sort of undermine germany's relationship with israel in that sense but there's certainly a sense that those 12 years of nazism can't be the thing that defines Germany forever. Um, and I think that's beginning to normalise Germany's relationship with itself to some extent. But there's certainly still, that certainly still overshadows everything else in its, in its history. So it's difficult to see that, you know, leaving kind of tomorrow. But I think over time, it is certainly beginning to, to normalise. Also, now that the last kind of survivors from that generation as well, the last people that are still there who were around you in the Nazi years are, are obviously, you know, dying now. I think once that's out of living memory as well, there will be a little bit of a kind of re-evaluation of what Germany is and what it stands for, I think. There's that old joke about don't mention the war, and I'm glad that you mentioned it before I did. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> how much does that war still hang over Germany? And now you... You say there that the sort of memory is fading as people die out and things like that. Are young Germans forgetting the war, putting it behind them? And is there an active movement within Germany to try and do that? Yeah, there's this whole, um, it's been called a Schlussstrich, which means like a final line underneath it. But that's very much a sort of thing that comes from the relatively far right arguing that basically Germany is more than the Nazism and therefore we need to draw that, that line under it and just forget about it. And I don't think Germany will, in the foreseeable future, go that far in terms of forgetting about it. But I do think there's a way of integrating that into the longer view of German history that perhaps makes people look beyond that as well and, and try and see the bigger picture as to how it led to that in the first place, You know how Germany has evolved since as one of the most, arguably one of the most stable democracies in the West. Um, and therefore, you know, I think it'll be, it'll slot into the wider picture rather than being the one thing that overshadows everything else. It's quite interesting that when, um, you know, you look at things like the First World War, which plays a huge role in this country in terms of remembrance, that is completely overshadowed by the Second World War in Germany and people don't really do much with that. I, I sort of remember when I was at school, we we did it very briefly and then moved on, um, basically because it wasn't seen as kind of the major thing when you think what, you know, in terms of war crimes and so on, what was, you know, that, that were committed in that war as well. And, and they received very little attention because of that. And as I say, the, the left have recently begun to argue that other crimes like colonial crimes, for example, committed in the 19th century should should play a, a, a bigger role in, in Germany's remembrance. There's some sort of battle over Germany's past going on at the moment and what the outcome of that is remains to be seen, I think. Of course, after World War II, the reaction to the Nazis within Germany has varied. On the one hand, many previous Nazis were simply forgiven by the West and sort of denazified, as they called it. Obviously, to try and integrate West Germany into Europe and rebuild Germany as a nation, you can't do that without hosting or, you know, rehabilitating some people who were Nazis. On the other hand, Germany has had this extraordinary national guilt and conscience around World War II and around the Holocaust specifically, which I think, I, you know, I, it's pretty much unprecedented. You may correct me there. I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are on how, and you may not know too much about this, so don't worry you know, if you don't, but comparing how Germany viewed itself after World War II to how Japan, for example, viewed their own history after World War II. Now, if you go and speak to young Japanese people, it's unlikely they know too much about that period. And I think there was a big difference in how the two countries viewed that war. So can you, can you make that comparison? 
Yeah, no, I think you're right there. I think, I mean, I, you know, I'm not an expert, obviously, on the Japanese side of things, but from what, what I gather, there seems to have been very much a culture of, of let's draw that line and start again, and therefore not mentioning too many of the, you know, things basically that happened during the war and, and before that as well. So Germany has literally, as you say, taken the opposite um, approach more recently, that is. Um, so certainly sort of beginning in the with the SPD, so with the Social Democrat era, uh, under Willy Brandt, really, in, in sort of 1969 um, onwards, when he famously went to Warsaw and, and fell on his knees um, in, in front of the um, Holocaust, sorry, Warsaw Uprising uh, Memorial. Um, so, you know, th- those kinds of things happened in Germany over the last, you know, few decades. And history is a compulsory subject as well, for example. Um, so you have to take it on and, and take it up to A-level um, and so on, because it's basically seen as an elementary part of, of what Germany is. Every time I go and, and you know do tours and things in, in German concentration camps, for example, you quite often see Bundeswehr soldiers in uniform walking around. They're, they're on one of their, or what part of their training as soldiers is to, to deal with their history as a as the German military, basically. And they have to go and, and uh, go to concentration camps and museums and things to, to educate themselves about the sort of legacy. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know Cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain. I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today of the of the German army and those kinds of things so it's very much part of German culture now that you know you sort of do this it's called Vergangenheitsbewältigung so dealing with one's past which is really quite a central concept within uh, Germany still I mean look at Berlin as an example you know at the heart of it you don't find something like Trafalgar Square but you've, you've got the Holocaust Memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe um, as as the sort of heart of Germany and heart of German culture, basically, and, and certainly memory culture. So that, I think, is, is still very much in place, and it's hard to see that disintegrate. Of course, German history isn't just those 12 years. And I do want to talk a bit about other parts of German history over the next half an hour, starting in 1871. Now, you've written this book about the formation of Germany as a country, and then I think we're going to go through 1871 to today. So let's be relatively brief about this. But um, what was Germany like before 1871, before its formation? 
Well, if you want to go all the way back to before Napoleon's um, invasion, it was just a patchwork of of over 400 little states and principalities and, you know, dukedoms and, and basically little political entities kind of collectively known as the Holy Roman Empire. The name is a little bit misleading, as as uh, the famous saying goes, it was neither holy nor was it Roman, nor was it an empire. And yes, there was a an emperor, um, but basically the, the only role that the states played together was for defensive purposes. And even then, the emperor usually had to haggle with all of the states individually, would they actually follow him into war um, or not? But there wasn't a common currency or a common market or even some sort of common identity, um, with the exception of a few intellectuals who kind of started thinking about the fact that language and culture and, and you know fairy tales and those kinds of things um, do have some common themes across the 400 states, but that's very much at sort of elite intellectual level. Um, Napoleon's invasion then changed that because Napoleon needed to basically deal with those with that territory he just conquered, and uh, he merged them into 39 states, which is uh, somewhat more doable <laughs> sort of as a, as, a, as a concept or as an entity. Um, and those 39 states were retained after Waterloo, so after he was defeated in 1815, they stuck with those. Then they carried on basically as 39 individual states, with Prussia and Austria being the two largest ones, um, as one loose German confederation, it was called, which again was largely for defensive purposes. So they just yeah, had a defensive agreement that if they need to go to war or if they get attacked, then they will fight together. That's largely born out of the idea that if they need to def- defeat the French again, basically with a view to the Napoleonic Wars being the largest thing that had happened in people's lifetimes, um, and actually in quite some time before that as well, as such a large-scale thing that people were genuinely kind of traumatised by it and didn't want it to happen again. So that worked. Um, and then basically the movement to unify Germany became more vocal over that century, over the over the course of the 19th century. Again, largely driven at this point by the middle classes, simply because that intellectual thing hadn't quite gone away. This kind of idea that as far as the German tongue is heard was the sort of phrase that some philosophers like Hegel and so on used, that there must be a common cultural link between people that speak the same language. But then you also begin to see, because of the Industrial Revolution kind of slowly taking off in in the German lands, that people do have resources in one place, people in the next, uh, agriculture in a different place. And if they had some form of common market, then they could merge all those things together and basically move onwards. Um, And that's why the the middle classes who are profiteering mostly from the Industrial Revolution and and the processes attached to that um, are beginning to push towards unifying, at least economically unifying the the German state. And then as we've seen with the EU, once you start with an economic market, you then have questions like how do you regulate that market? Um, Do you introduce common currencies? What about standards? What about having a level playing field? And suddenly you begin to introduce political constructs and and structures on top of the economic ones Um, and that's basically what happened throughout the century. Um, A key moment is the 1848 revolutions, Um, just quickly on that, so people were basically now really feeling the, the sort of harsh side effects of the industrial revolution in terms of cramped, terrible tenement housing in cities, diseases breaking out. Um, and then in the 1840s, the harvest failed as well in, in several years, uh, one after the other. Um, and that, together with the sort of new ideas of liberalism, nationalism, communism had just become a thing, obviously, of Marx and Engels, um, having written the Communist Manifesto. All of that mixed together into a pretty powerful cocktail, um, which then exploded all over Europe with the 1848 revolutions. 
they were crushed in Germany. So at this point, the liberals did offer the Prussian king the German crown and said to him, like, why don't we just have a, a common constitution for all of these 39 states? Prussian king can be the head of that. And then we'll just have a sort of more liberal state with a bit of democracy and some social me measures in there as well. And the Prussian king, Frederick William IV, turned that down and said he didn't want a crown that came from the gutter, as he phrased it meaning from the people rather than God. And therefore that didn't happen, crushed the uprisings um, and reinstated power. But I think that really, because they came so close to actually toppling the elites and some of the kind of local uh, dukes and so on were actually attacked directly by by mobs. Um, so that this really did frighten the elites. And, and so they gave in a little bit. So Prussia, for instance, introduced the parliament um, with a degree of, of democracy um, in its own state. Um, and it's at that point, basically, that Otto von Bismarck comes onto the scene um, first as the as the Prussian envoy to uh, St. Petersburg and then Paris, and then as the Prussian prime minister. And he convinced the Prussian king, then the brother of the previous king, Willem I, because his brother had died, um, basically took over from him. And he convinced him that this would actually be a good thing for Prussia if they unified Germany under Prussian leadership. Um, and then use Germany as a vehicle, basically, to extend Prussia's power. And that's how, um, basically, the, the Prussian king came on board with it. And then Bismarck fought a series of unification wars, they're now called. Um, so basically a war against Denmark, um, which sees some of the Danish territory to Germany um, or to Prussia at this point. Then against Austria to settle that dualism between Austria and Prussia once and for all. And then he provoked a war with France, the so-called Franco-Prussian War, at which point that defensive thing I was talking about earlier kicked in and the other German states basically rallied behind Prussia to defeat the French. And when that worked, Bismarck sort of used the sort of afterglow of, of that sort of glorious, you know, victory against the French to unify Germany. And, and then you end up with this very loosely cobbled together. I say in the book that it was sort of glued together with the blood of its enemies because of the nationalism that had basically been the, the binding factor of, of the German states at this point. Um, and Bismarck creates that and writes a, a constitution for it and it becomes a constitutional monarchy. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that that was, a, was a lot in a few that, minutes. <laughs> absolutely fantastic. I mean, if people want to know how Germany came about in a very literal way, uh, that was absolutely brilliant. What makes a nation? And you've just, you've just described there the actual chronological events of how Germany came about. But what actually made it a nation? In my opinion, at this, so this is also what I argue in my book as well, is, is that it is sheer defensive nationalism at this point. So this kind of experience that, that people had with Napoleon and then later again in the Franco-Prussian War, this kind of it's us against them. Um, I think that's basically what, what rallied the German states together and not much else at this point. Germans are very, very divided at this stage in terms of their, as I said earlier, denominations. So the South is Catholic, the North is Protestant. Um, you've got very, very strong local identities, particularly in states like Bavaria and Prussia. You would never, ever get the sort of, you know, Bavarian King Ludwig sort of bend the knee to the, you know, to a Prussian German Kaiser. Bismarck, in fact, had to write the letter that invited the Prussian king to become the Kaiser. He had to pen that for the Bavarian king and then bribe him to put a signature underneath it because he just wouldn't. Um, so not much else is holding Germany together then. So in, in the German case, I think what made the nation at this point is their defensiveness against others around them. It's Germany's position, I think, in Europe in the centre of it without any obvious physical boundaries left and right of it that made it feel vulnerable, I think, to both 
you know, the left and east and west, basically, um, entities east and west of it, so mainly Russia and um, France. Now, people in Britain, historians, love to talk about our a thousand years of uh, being not invaded and having this brilliant history that goes back, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of years, this kind of uniting culture. Germany there, born in 1871, out of this defensive pact, out of this nationalism, it may seem to some as to be quite a weak reason to be a nation. But the fact is, Germany is still a country today. It's been through a hell of a lot since 1871, obviously. But in those decades following 1871, Germany was extremely prosperous and it, and it stayed together and it was a very successful country. And until 1914, Germany really did well. Can you explain why that was? Now, obviously, it was born out of this nationalism, as you say. But up until 1914, it, that seemed to be very, very popular and worked very well. Yeah, it, it did economically. That's always the big rift in you know, within in that time period, basically, is that Germany became an economic giant very quickly, you know, sort of on a par and in some areas overtaking uh, Britain, which had um, obviously started much earlier uh, with the Industrial uh, Revolution. And it does become huge and, and very prosperous. So the, I would say probably the highest living standards in Europe at the time as well as people reasonably contented with that. But Socially, the problems that I just described remain. So you have not only that north-south divide, but also socially huge class divides now um, with basically people flocking to the cities, particularly if you look at areas like the Ruhr region or Berlin or Hamburg, where you've got large you know, slums basically developing with the, with the tenement housing there being absolutely horrendous. Um, and as a result of that, um, socialism grows as a as a movement. And the SPD party, now led by Olaf Scholz, was founded basically out of these sentiments. It's the oldest political party in Germany now for that reason, because it survived all the way through. Which in turn, however, you know, threatened the position of the old elites, like the, the Kaiser himself, but also the aristocracy and to some extent the middle classes, um, obviously weren't overly keen on on these kind of socialist policies either and that basically led to a huge fracturing in society and to hold that together and not least in parliament where laws had to be passed and and you end up basically in 1912 for example the last election before the the war you literally have the Reichstag so the German parliament divided half and half between liberals and um, and democrats on the and, and socialists on the one side and then the conservative kind of pro-monarchy forces on the other, virtually taking up half the seats. So it's complete stagnation to get anything passed. You know, it's, it's an absolute nightmare at this point. And they keep using nationalism again as a force um, to, to try and get stuff moving through this, you know, stagnant parliament. So colonialism, for instance, becomes a thing largely because, A, the middle class is wanted for, for markets and resources, but also because it's hugely popular with the people. And then once you do that, you know, suddenly you force the SPD into a position where they have to almost agree with that to get re-elected, or else people won't elect the individual politicians back in. And because nationalism kind of, you know, gets used more and more and more throughout the time period as the divisions become bigger and bigger, you end up in 1914 with a situation where war almost seems a almost a desirable option because you can again trigger that, you know, defensive nationalism in Germans and, and rally them together. So in my opinion, you know, it's kind of come full circle, was born in, in blood and iron, as Bismarck phrased it himself, uh, the state, and, and ends up in that, um, in its destruction again in, in the First World War. Can you describe relatively briefly what happened to Germany after World War One? What was the consequences of that war on German society, whether it's economic, political, social? 
it's huge i think i mean many people have described it as like the ur catastrophe like the origin basically of of germany as a as a trauma which i think is there's a lot to that theory that i would agree with that i think that's the reason why germany still exists as a state now is because of the horrendous experience that everyone went through in the first world war you know you've got um i think it's 1.6 million in total you know people dead basically during the war casualties on top of that so everyone had some form of loss during the war or knew somebody who died um just like in britain as well it was a hugely binding experience but for germany it was the first actual binding experience where everyone was involved in it one way or another i think the collective defeat and humiliation after the war played a huge role as well um not least with the treaty of versailles obviously in the and the punitive nature of that but also the way that you know people shared the humiliation and anger that was caused by that and you know all took part in that and i think that's why germany got compounded basically as a as a state that papered over a lot of the not not just papered over actually that filled a lot of the cracks i think um and and formed a, a kind of more cohesive nation afterwards in a negative way but it did one of the relatively forgotten periods of german history is the weimar republic between 1924 and 1929, this was a sort of golden age of that republic, and this was the democratic formation of Germany after World War I until Hitler becomes Chancellor. Now, one of the most famous and effective politicians of the Weimar Republic is a man called Gustav Stresemann, and he was, in all accounts, a genius at what he did. He was extremely talented. He managed to bring Germany back from the brink of various different crises, including the hyperinflation in 1921, uh, 1923, sorry. And he, he governed Germany and was part of the German government, the Weimar Republic, in a time where Germany was prospering again in, the, in, this, in that very short period. Do you think if Gustav Stresemann hadn't have died before, just before the Wall Street crash, the world would have been saved from the horrors of the 1930s and the 1940s? Uh, well, I've recently written a, a piece on that entitled Gustav Stresemann, the man who nearly saved the world or almost saved the world. I think that's going a little bit far. I think he realised that himself, actually. Um, he did uh, famously say that the German economy was dancing on the edge of a volcano in this very sort of visual image, um, which you know, just goes to show that he realised how precarious the situation still was. Some historians have argued rather than calling it the golden period, it should probably be called the gilded um, period, just because it is very superficial, it's kind of American loans and, you know, basically fund funds from America, which propped up the German economy, but didn't really allow it to recover. So unemployment stayed relatively high throughout that period, despite of the um, investments made into uh, industry and infrastructure. And you have this, the social problems remain basically again, this, you know, the very deep divides, social divides in Germany staying the same. Um, and all of that is only propped up basically by this brief bought prosperity was financed and funded with with the doors and then the young plan, the extension of that from 1924. And when those loans obviously got called in after the Wall Street crash, um, the German economy crashes with it for that reason, because it is only propped up by that. It's hard to see how Stresemann could have solved that even if he had survived, given that there, there was no way to stop the Americans, you know, calling those those loans back at that point because they were desperate themselves and they could they could hardly turn around to their own people and say, well, sorry, we're going to keep funding the German economy whilst you're, you know, experiencing the, the hardship that you are seeing here. Um, so I doubt it because there just weren't any avenues to explore at this point, I think, the way that he'd set it up. 
meant that if the American economy crashed, the German economy would crash with it. In 1926, Stresemann won the Nobel Peace Prize. And I think it was, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, but for bringing Germany into the global community, into the League of Nations, the Locarno treaties, that sort of thing. He made this speech, and I want to quote from it briefly, um, to the Nobel Prize committee in Oslo when he won. And he said, A Shakespeare could only have arisen on English soil, in the same way your great dramatists and poets express the nature and essence of the Norwegian people, but they also express that which is universally valid for all of mankind. Do you think that contemporary politicians in Germany and in Europe can heed that advice that countries only prosper and create great works of civilization by having a unifying nation, by having a unifying story, and that by being pan-nationalist or globalist, this is only a path that will lead to either mediocrity or stagnation? I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword because once you've got that national identity and it's it's strong and it's there, it creates unity internally, but it also creates this us-against-them mentality externally. So in that respect, you know, it depends a little bit on what you do with it. I mean, you could argue that, you know, that's exactly what Hitler did as well. He created a, a sense of Germanness again that people could be, you know, proud of and proud in, building the motorways together and having all of these giant infrastructure things that he had and, and social programs, you know, like the you know strength through joy, for instance, rewards for workers, those kinds of things. And they all rallied the nation together. That was the whole point of them. And he made a big thing out of being the one Führer for the one nation and so on, abolishing all of the individual states. That was the only time Germany wasn't a federal state under the, the Nazis because they centralized everything. But that was then obviously used and turned, you know, against the other nations, basically, because from the beginning, it was a kind of Aryans against, you know, you had internal enemies, supposedly, like the Jews and socialists and so on, and then external enemies like the Slavs and and communists and so on. So I think it depends a little bit on what this nationalism is focused on, whether it's a sort of benign internal thing around, you know, culture, food and, and that kind of thing, or if you're looking at creating a like Sparta-esque almost, you know, kind of fighting spirit out of it. So there, there's always the danger in, in that, I think. I went to Berlin for the first time recently, and obviously I went to the Holocaust Memorial and to all of the um, the major sites in Berlin. And it left me wondering a question that obviously many, many people will ask is, whether the Holocaust and the rise of the Nazis could have happened anywhere, or was it specific to Germany as a country, as a society, because of its history? What's your opinion? (laughs) That is a million dollar question. How much time have I got? Um, yes, no, you're right. Um, it, is, it is one of those questions because it, obviously the way that you answer it completely determines the way that you see, you know, politics, the world, individual nations and, and so on. I think the way that it happened is very, not just peculiar to Germany, but also to the specific situation that Germany was in at the time. So I don't think the same thing would have happened, say, 50 years earlier. Um, because it needed the catastrophe of the First World War was absolutely key, in my opinion, for for just the mindset to be there and for the economic conditions to be as dire as they were. And then on top of that, you've got um, undercurrents of anti-Semitism already running relatively high and not just among the wider population, but specifically in this elite that rose out of the Prussian aristocracy, the so-called Juncker class. And they're, they're very their anti-Semitism was very virulent. It wasn't just kind of like a 
you know, like the undercurrent you see everywhere in Europe, but specifically very, very aggressive form kind of of that as well. And because they still ran, you know, like the justice system and, and politics and so on, it was relatively easy for Hitler to tap into that basically and, and use it as well. So I think it can't just happen anywhere and at any time because it was so specific to that situation. But, you know, that's National Socialism specifically with with all of its attendants, like crimes, basically. But I do think similar things can happen elsewhere. And at other times, it always depends whether, you know, kind of all the stars are aligned in a negative way, basically. But I think it was particular to that time frame and the particular situation that it was in. Now, you've talked earlier about the state of Germany after World War One. What was the state of Germany after World War Two? And there's obviously huge differences. The Allies actually invade properly in World War Two, whereas in World War One, obviously, there's an armistice and the Treaty of Versailles. So can you explain again, relatively briefly, the political, social, economic consequences of that war on Germany? Well, people were relatively quickly getting, certainly in the West, getting the idea that they're working with the Allies to rebuild Germany. So the blame was pretty, pretty swiftly pushed onto the Nazi elite. There's talk of, they, they use all of these religious words, like, you know, Hitler was a messiah, um, or like, a, you know, they use kind of all magic even, they use words like, you know, he he um, almost bewitched the German public to, to follow him. And that was kind of the, the thing, which the, the psychological prop, which allowed West Germans to get out of this kind of Nazi state, draw a line under it for now, um, and try and deal with the problems ahead of them. So people threw themselves into the work that needed to be done, into the clearing up, into the rebuilding of housing, that kind of stuff, and just almost distracted themselves with that. In the East, that was more difficult to do because denazification was really thorough. So teachers, for example, the whole teaching body was just sacked. Same goes for lawyers and people like that, basically. And you just had suddenly newly trained, literally over the course of a six-week you know, cause newly trained lawyers, judges, teachers suddenly sat there doing, you know, the work that specialists had trained years for to do, uh, which led to economic chaos. But it did mean that East Germans kind of felt they had a little bit of the sort of moral high ground there over the West Germans in that sense. And then people moved moved on with their lives and kind of, you know, when you talk to people now, I'm writing a book about East Germany at the moment and I'm interviewing a lot of people like through these years. And there's always the kind of focuses always on what they did in their own little lives basically there's very little focus on the on the bigger picture and that I think made it easier for people to cope with the amount of guilt and you know just the consequences basically of Nazism if you cast yourself in the role of victim um, and then you know kind of just carry on with your life and try and rebuild and that was only it's only very very recently that this kind of idea of 1945 as a dividing line between Germany before and Germany after has been criticised and is beginning to, to dissolve a little bit. My final question, which links in with your your East Germany book that you're, you're writing now. Do you think that people have become more or less nostalgic for, for East Germany? It's hard to tell. I've always had problems with that because what people are nostalgic about is, is their, their own private lives in it. Um, I mean, when I, you know, I, I fly back to Germany over Christmas, hopefully, or, or things going well, and there will be a lot of East German paraphernalia around. People still drink East German eggnog and eat East German chocolate and that sort of stuff, you know, just because it's one of those things that you've always done. East German, like folk music will be on the 
uh, radio again, much to my dismay, you know, that, that sort of stuff. It's just people remember their own lives and, and their own childhoods. And you can't just draw a line there in 1990 and say to people, you can't remember the car that you drove or the, you know, everyone remembers their first car fondly. Everyone remembers their first holiday fondly and those kinds of things. And that's basically what East Germans are doing. So I think it has become more of a thing, but only because that's moved further back, um, you know, in the same way that people remember, say, the 80s or the 70s uh, with more nostalgia than they do, say, the 90s or the early 2000s. I think that's the key reason, in my opinion, behind that, rather than wanting the state back, is kind of just looking back at, at one's own youth um, and, and indulging in a bit of sort of rose-tinted nostalgia. Someone, I was speaking to a colleague previously about what questions I should be asking you, and he said that he wanted to ask why so many non-German historians are so fantastic at studying Germany, Ian Kershaw and many others. And perhaps, maybe this isn't true, but in the UK we probably read more foreign, foreign historians about Germany than actual Germans reporting on their own history. Is there any particular reason for that, or is that just totally not true? No, it's true. I mean, you know, I've said this before about Willem I as well. There are two major biographies. One is by a British historian, the other by an Australian one. You know, and there doesn't there doesn't exist an equivalent in German. It's one of the reasons why I don't live in, and work in Germany either, because history is still so entangled in those debates that we've just had, you know, having very kind of real political consequences today, that the debate gets channeled into very particular you know, frameworks, and you can't step outside of them without risking, you know, your, your academic credibility or your, or even your, your job. It's easier to stand outside of Germany and talk about things like that than, than doing it inside um, the country itself. And I think that's the only basically place where you can do so is right within academia, where, where it doesn't kind of go beyond that. But even popular history is still very much frowned upon as a trivialization of what happened in the past and it's too grave to to sort of make light of it and, and write popular history books about it that people can read um exhibitions are all extremely serious and academic on these on these issues so i think it'll take germany itself a little while longer to try and um democratize its own history and allow different perspectives and different viewpoints and different degrees of formality in it i think Katius, thank you so much for joining us. That was a real tour de force of uh, recent German history. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.